Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's been the top story. President Donald Trump saying the U.S. will withdraw from that landmark 2015 accord to curb Iran's nuclear program and reinstate financial sanctions on the Islamic Republic, opening up an uncertain new chapter for the Middle East. I'm really pleased to say the privilege is ours. Greg Valliere is in New York with us this morning, Horizon Investments Chief Global Strategist. Good morning to you, Greg. Great to see you. Good morning. So what is a deal if the United States is no longer in it? Well, it does still pose a real risk to Western Europe that we could impose more sanctions on some countries there. Uh, it, I think, poses one enormous risk, and that is that it may unshackle Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, he went in last night to southern Syria with a missile attack. Uh, the price of oil was increasing maybe partly because of that factor. And Netanyahu is saying a lot of provocative things, uh, like it's better to deal with Iran now rather than later. So let's start with the business angle, yep. and then we can start with the geopolitics within sure. the region. There's some European companies operating in Iran at the moment. Total has a, uh, a joint venture in the country that they need to reconsider at the moment as yep. well. Volkswagen has begun selling vehicles in Iran as of last year. Siemens are operating yep. there. There are big energy companies involved as well. What do these companies do, even if their governments, respective governments, mm-hmm. stay in the deal? Does the United States have international reach still here? Well, you hit on the word earlier. The uncertainty factor is huge right now. And I think a lot, you know, we can talk about whether the deal was a good deal, the, whether Trump should have pulled out of this nuclear deal. But at the bottom of line is the fact that Western European companies saw making a buck. They wanted to make some money by dealing with Tehran, and that now is in question. So for the rest of the year, how much longer does this play out? Quite clearly, these sanctions don't get through straight away. The United States has given many of these Iranian oil buyers several months, in the case of, I think, six months, to curb some of those purchases. Greg, how long have we got before these sanctions really start to bite? A a few months, but I think the key factor, as I said earlier, is what Israel does. If they decide it's time to go into Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and take out the Iranian military bases, that could greatly inflame this story. So let's consider the geopolitics in the Mm -hmm. region. Do you sense that we're about to make the same mistakes we made with Iraq over 10 years ago, or is this different? And if it is different, how so? I think it's different, John, in that we have an isolationist president. He doesn't like committing U.S. troops abroad, and I think that while there'll be a U.S. presence, uh, I don't see it as extensive as the presence we've had for the last decade or two. Is he an a MacArthur isolationist from the Midwest? No. No. He's a unique isolationist. Mm-hmm. Is there actually a coherent isolationism to the day-to-day grind of the Trump administration? He's reactive more than anything yeah, else. Yeah, but the people around him are reacting to him, including the Secretary of State, newly minted. So you've got the Secretary of State, you've got John Bolton, you've got others who I think are much more hawkish, and I think we will take a hawkish position. But the key player, I think, for the next few months geopolitically is Netanyahu. How aggressive is he going to get? What's the constraint on Mr. Netanyahu? Very little. The constraint was the U.S. pulling out of the Iranian deal. And now that we've done it 24 hours ago, I think Netanyahu may feel unshackled. 
Israel seems to have incredible amounts of influence over this administration compared to the yes, previous one. Indeed. What are your thoughts on that, Greg? Well, I, I think Trump ran on that uh, promise. And, you know, just a quick digression. This is a president who, in some respects, is underrated in that he's kept just about all of his campaign promises, whether it's the embassy in Jerusalem going after China, North Korea, tax cuts, regulatory reform, right down the list. You could look at his campaign promises and say he's kept them. And people are surprised that he has. Yes, they are. And I, I think, you know, Tom and I were talking earlier, you underestimate Trump at your own peril. His job numbers have gone up a bit. His handling of the economy, those yeah. numbers have gone up a bit. One, well, a couple of uh, questions here. You know, the news folks this morning is extraordinary. John and I and Pim will try to keep up with it as we can. Part of the politics and part of the midterm election is follow the money. Yep. I don't have a clear image of what the Democrat money looks like or the Republican money looks like. What's it look like? Both parties have raised a lot. I don't. I think the Republicans are in pretty good shape. But under the heading of follow the money, there's one big story, and that's Michael Cohen. I, I think that's the thing we're going to watch. Uh, the money he has gotten from various sources, including maybe Russian oligarchs, has opened up a whole new angle to this story. You know, that's a story for Mr. Trump, but does yep. the Cohen story redound up, upon the midterm elections as well? I don't... I'm not sure that America's engaged in the tick by tick that we are in Manhattan. I, I travel all around America, and in most of the country, yeah. certainly middle America, nobody cares. They think it's fake news. They think it's overdone. Uh, there's not <clears throat> this, the sense of, oh, we got another yeah. hot story that all of us have right now. Well, there's a Russian oligarch, uh, Mr. Ovechkin, with the Washington Capitals, who <laughs> have to do pretty well. In the time that we have, a, folks, we must digress, John Farrell, with Greg Vallier with us as we look at the Washington Capitals. I mean, finally, right? Well, I love the Capitals. They won, finally beat Pittsburgh, but I think they're probably so happy they, they're in danger of getting swept or losing to Tampa Bay because I think they've declared victory before we're really at the final victory. Has Trump declared victory before the final victory? Well, that's a really good point. As I said, I think we underestimate Trump at our own peril. Uh, I think that there is no way right, right now you're going to get 67 votes in the Senate to convict him. Impeachment, maybe. Conviction, I don't see it. But, but within that is his rising poll numbers. I mean, there's this poll in summer shaded Republican and, mm -hmm. and that. But if we start with the idea that Gallup's a pretty good shop, the vector for the president is up. Can it breach to new Trump support, get from that 40-ish level up into the middle 40s? I would argue, Tom, the key is, do the Democrats have a game plan? Do the Democrats stand for anything? Right. And you, you talk to the Democrats, and they worry that you can't win on Trump stinks. You've got to have something more than that. Hillary Clinton proved you need something more well, substantive. I'm not sure what the Democrats have for an agenda. I, I just got an email, and this is from John from Coventry, mm -hmm. who says, no more capitals talk. So we're going to book Abby Joseph Cohen. We're going to book Abby Joseph Cohen, who won't box. shut up about the <laughs> capitals. Uh, you know, I got some messages yesterday saying yep. we've got a a lot of listeners in Tampa, and we're being way too biased here, Tom King. We are. <clears throat> well, uh, for those that don't follow hockey, you can watch Tampa, Washington. Yep. They have a defenseman uh, from one of the Scandinavians, uh, Mr. Hedman, yep. who is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I, I watched him live in Tampa a few weeks ago. Who would have thought ago. the Capitals could be overconfident, but that could be a risk. Keep it up. Come on. Come on. Oh, look, another email from John from Coventry. <laughs> in the penalty box. What's he saying? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Greg from Greg uh, Villiers, thank you so Great much. Great to see really you guys. Appreciate it.
Mark Chandler joining us, Brown Brothers Harriman, Global Head of Currency Strategy. Um, Mark, last year, June 2017, Argentina issued a century bond. Um, 11 months later, Argentina is requesting IMF help. Why do we keep getting emerging markets so wrong? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, the funny thing is this is the way I think capitalism works. You know, I grew up in Chicago, and United Airlines has had uh, several problems over the years. And whenever they emerge from bankruptcy, we're happy to buy their bonds again. And I think the same thing happens with Argentina. When they get out of trouble, that's the time to be buying the stuff because they, they've got, a uh, say, a short shelf life. And I think that the uh, RG situation, I think I'm questioning whether the RG gets the Flexible line of credit they've asked for. That flexible line of credit right. has gone to a P- Poland, Mexico, Colombia. Nobody's used right. it. It's a seal of how good housekeeping. Jargon alert there, Mr. <laughs> Farrell. RG means Argentina. Oh, really? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Mark Chandler, let's talk about what's happening in emerging market foreign exchange. That seems to be where the pain is. More acutely, it's in the FX side of things. Why? Well, I think that what's happened is that first, we've got a big dollar recovery on the back of higher U.S. interest rates. So emerging markets had been in favor for the last couple of years. I think the MSCI, Emerging Market Index, equities, up 33% last year. Everybody and their sister are long emerging markets, and now it's beginning to unwind, taking profits like we're seeing in the major currencies as well. But the currencies in the EM that are most vulnerable are not just the ones that people poured into. But they're also the ones that have some political or economic problems. So we go after the sick and weak ones first. Yeah. Argentina, Turkey, Venezuela uh, began off in the Philippines. Uh, this is just uh, we're going after the weak ones. They're the ones who are the most vulnerable. And then we'll worry about attacking the stronger ones. Are we going after the ones that don't have central bank credibility as well? I think that's part of the issue. And the credibility like we're seeing in Turkey is questioning the, whether the central banks are truly independent. And that affects that credibility issue. So looking at things at the moment, where are the opportunities at the moment, Mark, as you look at things? Because quite clearly this pain's going to spread indiscriminately sometimes. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are that emerging markets are sort of like a fad. And we have serious love affairs with them for a while, and they fall out of fashion. They're out of fashion now, and I think the tendency is that people are going to be too early to pick a bottom to these emerging markets. So you're saying we're not there yet. I'm, not, I'm saying exactly that. We're not there yet, that we should be expecting uh, more pressure coming from a stronger dollar right. and higher interest rates. Explain the linkage in modern EM of currency depreciation to domestic inflation. Is it textbook? I think, I think what, you're, what you're getting at, Tom, is the pass-through. How much, and it varies from country to country. Sure. How much a weaker currency filters to domestic inflation. And a lot of emerging markets, very quick pass-through. In the U.S., typically we have very low pass-through. U.K. Has, tends to have higher pass-through. Turkey, it's like, what, six hours? <laughs> it's true that the, that's, the, that's part of the problem, is that some of these countries, such rapid pass-through. Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. Okay, well, Their economies are hitting. They, they need to, they're sort of caught in a yeah, squeeze. But you and I are going to do a history lesson here. There was Ecuador. Okay, Ecuador's little Ecuador. They screwed up in the early 90s. Fine. Mexico, what a disaster. Blame the U.S. Thailand blew up. And then a cup of coffee after Thailand... Indonesia blew up. Now, Indonesia gets my attention. It's hugely populated. It's a huge economy. I'm watching Rupiah, and John Farrell, to your point, it's not doing a lira. It's not doing a peso, but the vector's in the bad direction, isn't it? It's in the bad direction. There, I think, Indonesia is, you know, mostly in East Asia, you have low-yielding countries. Indonesia's an exception. Indonesia's sort of the high-yielder of Asia, and so that might help give it some support, but I think that you're right, yeah. that the tide is against it. John, there's just a massive, what's it called, Vujade? 
I don't know. There's a lot of bouchardé going on. There's a lot going on. I will say some countries have been spared, Philippines being one of them. Um, the GDP numbers out of the Philippines have just been phenomenal. We're looking at numbers north of 6%, Tom. And the central bank seems to have yeah. way more credibility than the likes yes. of Argentina <clears throat> but or John, Turkey, but it's really supported them. When we showed, when you were in makeup, John, for the real deal, John goes into makeup, folks, two days ahead of time. I go into makeup on show. a Wednesday for, for a show on Friday. It's like the Met Gala. John is like the Met Gala as he gets ready. For Friday, Mark Chandler, if I look at trade-weighted Philippine, which we called on TV, trade-weighted Duterte, the fact is, I mean, very quickly here, trade-weighted currencies matter right now, don't they? Trade-weighted matters for how a country has the impact, how the weaker currency impacts inflation. And so trade-weighted is the best way to think okay. about currency impact on the economy. We're out of time. Somehow I think you'll be back soon. Mark Chandler on EM, Emerging uh, Market Currencies. Thomas Petrie with us with Petrie Partners, which defines American oil and the entrepreneurial spirit of American oil out of uh, West Point and uh, Boston University. And then with H.C. Wainwright years ago on to First Boston and in a storied effort with Merrill Lynch with Petrie uh, Parkman. And I think a lot of people don't know this, Tom Petrie, but we all remember the day Korean Air 007 disappeared. I had a family thing there that was involved. And that's the day you decided to go all in, all America. And those are those global tensions. How is American oil today linked to international oil like it was the day of that horrific tragedy for Korea? Well, it's, it's, it's very much like it was then, only better in that we've got a better set of growth prospects. We, we are just below the level we were at in 1969, which was peak production for the U.S., and we thought we'd never see it again. But with the redefinition uh, of oil with the shale revolution, we now have a situation where if we needed to, could we get to 11 or 12 million barrels a day? Some say it'll happen next Are year. Are we independent now? We're not fully independent, but we're close. And if you really factor in the, the gas along with it, we are. We've got more flexibility than at any time in my 44 years as an oil analyst. I mean, uh, we're over half at 10.5 million now. That's right. I mean, that's phenomenal, Tom. It, it is. There is some concern about whether we can sustain that and how long we can sustain it. But uh, but given the kind of geopolitical forces at work, we, can, we probably can. The big thing is we've got to build out some infrastructure to get the next round of development to market. So let's talk about the geopolitical forces. What changed yesterday? Uh, the, the U.S. Did, did adopt a very bold strategy, uh, and some would say high risk, and I can't argue with that. Um, but uh, it is based on the belief that we've got the flexibility at this time to do this and the nature of the threat that we were facing uh, they felt was such that now's the time to find out uh, where we are, allies. You're in quite a phenomenal position, Tom, with your experience, a military background, an oil analyst. You look at the Middle East right now. What are the risks? Well, look, there's a fundamental uh, confrontation underway. It's been underway even without us. Um, it, some would say it was an outgrowth of some of the things we did 10, 15 years ago. But but uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Iran 
are mortal enemies. Uh, there, there should be no doubt. We've already had a proxy war uh, in Yemen. We have the equivalent of one um, in Lebanon. Uh, and the vote this week uh, was certainly a step in, in uh, fortifying the position of Iran as an influence on that side of it. Uh, so the Saudi-Iranian uh, confrontation is there. It's real. Uh, really, there's a real argument President Obama deserved the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, not for being elected, which is what he got it for the last time, but he deserved it because he's made Israel and Saudi Arabia much closer allies. Well, they've become allies and they've become allies over Iran. And, and I just wonder how this bleeds into the politics of OPEC. How can we have mortal allies that agree on something like oil, when they get around a table at OPEC. How's that possible, Tom? Well, the real key in OPEC right now is not that everybody agrees, because there's always been differences between some of the smaller players and the big ones. But right at the moment, there's a new <coughs> OPEC. It, it is OPEC plus with Russia thrown in. And there's a special agreement now between Saudi and Russia yeah. about what they oh, want to do over the coming Are you years. suggesting the cartel is more cartelly than it's been in recent years? It is it, good. Good behavior has been rewarded in the last uh, nine to twelve months, and uh, and that's self-reinforcing. At least until it is. So I, I would suggest for all of our listeners, certainly for me, oil production of Iran is almost an abstract. It's off the east coast of the Persian Gulf, and then it's up the river, sort of up the Iraq border, right? Yeah, it, it, uh, that's right. I mean, do you know how much oil's there, or is it a mystery? Like it is maybe in Saudi Arabia as well. Well, in that part of the world, uh, none of its the, the definitional aspects of it are much murkier than they are. I mean, at the Colorado Oklahoma. School of Mines, where you hold court, the answer is they don't have a clue what's in Iran, right? Uh, we don't know, and part of the reason we don't know is it's the oldest source of production. They preceded by almost really a half century the active development of the resources in Iran. The OPEC so, data puts the numbers at 3.75 million barrels of oil a day. Oh, listen yeah, to that, that's productivity, not reserves. You just had that on the tip of your tongue, that's, right? That's, that's yeah. the production numbers. As, yeah. as Tom points out, we're not very clear on the reserves. And let's be clear, we're not very clear on the reserves in a place like Saudi Arabia either. That's the data that's tough to find. The big question, I think, for the oil market this morning, Tom, and I sense you'll probably agree, is if the United States is no longer part of the deal, does the deal still exist in the sense that the sanctions don't apply to the other places that Iran exports crude to? Do you see oil production in Iran declining significantly after the United States has pulled out of this deal? I think Iran will have trouble maintaining that production level. Why? Because they need to import technology where the U.S. does have leverage. Interesting. Oh, come on. They're not, they're not that was the one of the reasons they... Germany? I'm sorry? They're not going to get the technology from Germany? It's not clear that Germans have that ability. They, Interesting. They, it, well, this is the fundamental question, yeah. Tom. Can the U.K., who does have that ability, does have that technology, Good carry on dealing with Iran, now the United States have instituted sanctions? Are they U.S. sanctions in, in, or are they international and sanctions? And the answer to that question is... The U.K. has other things to think about when they decide whether they're going to go with Iran or the U.S., something called post-Brexit. Yeah. And so, you know, they if, if Trump plays it appropriately uh, and, and patiently, I think they stay with us in the case of the U.K. So you, yep. just, you just wonder who wins this morning in the oil market. And I sense it's clearly Saudi Arabia. They get in a higher oil price. Mm -hmm. And if Iranian crude production drops, guess who fills the void? Saudi Arabia gets to start pumping again 
at a higher oil price. Are well, they the winners out of all of this? That's right. And and let's talk about the sequence. Price goes up. They start yeah. – they, and then they become self-correcting because they, they fill the spot. And even their ally, President Trump, yeah. decides SPR okay. is available too. We're up $2.07 Brent crude, seventy six ninety two, twenty four $24 away from $100 a barrel. When was the last time I said uh, that? But Tom Petrie, the Iranian oil, am I right? goes through the Persian Gulf, across the Indian Ocean, and through the Malacca Strait at the margin to help China and Asia, right? Yes, They right. have a huge motivation to keep that flow going, yeah. don't they? China will, I think, be the key for Iran. Discuss now, that further. Well, then Saudi Arabia has weighed in, and Saudi Arabia has joint ventures with China in refining. Exxon and, and Saudi have refined Saudi oil, have built a special refinery to refine that oil. And so there is going to be uh, uh, real competition between, between Saudi, Saudi and Saudi yep. with the oil needs of China. That's right. Does and the China, President and China United will play one off against okay, the does other. It, have you briefed the President of the United States on this? Uh, no. no. He hasn't asked. But there's awareness in our government about those kind of issues, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I think there's pretty good sophistication right. in understanding that. You okay over there? Yeah, I was just looking at the um, the Yankee score last night. Oh, were you? Yeah, just to get an update. Tom Petrie and I were going to talk about the vastly improved Colorado Avalanche this year. You don't want to talk about baseball, do you? <clears throat> I, the New York Yankees three, and I, I can see there's a two next to the oh, Boston can, Red can. Sox. Yeah, and they play again this evening, right? The, 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 the Red Sox won 25 of 23 games, and I still didn't get the World Series tickets for it. <laughs> can we go this evening? You don't fancy it? No, I can't go Can, can we go tomorrow? No, I can't. Come on. Come on. No. I'll take you kicking and screaming to Yankee Stadium. No, the family no. can come. To hellhole. The f- Yankee Stadium's <laughs> a hellhole. I, I imagine there's some listeners this morning. Good morning, Yankee <clears throat> fans. Um, I, I think um, Tom's a little bit upset about his Boston Red Sox <laughs> and wants to talk about hockey instead. <laughs> I, the right? next time you come over to the, 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 the manse, I'm putting every Red Sox book in the house. You know what? I once, turned, I once turned up at Tom Keane's house in a New York Yankees cap. <laughs> we threw him out. <laughs> Without question, and John, to get right to it, this is our interview of the day. My book of the summer, uh, one of my two books of the summer, is The Threat Matrix, which is on the FBI at war in the age of global terror. And Michael Hayden plays prominently in Garrett Graff's wonderful The Threat Matrix. And of course, as you would always expect, the writing Michael Hayden uh, is out, General Hayden is out with a new book on his take on the assault on intelligence. This is a short, brief, must-read primer on where we are, according to General Hayden, and the general welcomes us uh, right now. Michael, we've got to talk about current events as well. President Trump, with a decisive decision, what will be the ramifications of that for the American intelligence community? Well, um, lots of things to think about, and and the real answer is we'll see. Uh, But at the departure point, I don't think this is a decision that the intelligence community would have recommended 
to the president. And look, I get it. Presidents get to make decisions on a variety of criteria. But the American intel assessment right now, not me, I'm talking about Donald Trump's intel community, is that Iran is further away from a weapon with this deal than they would be without it. We know more about the Iranian program with this deal than we would know without it. And so I don't think there is enthusiasm in the intelligence community for taking the dramatic step that the president took yesterday. Now, going forward, intel is going to try to organize itself around what plan B is. And, he, and here's my great problem. I don't know plan B. The president, the administration, has yet to articulate plan B. So I think the intel guys a little disappointed with the decision and a lot anxious about what next. Michael, what is the prospect for um, a series of negotiations now between Iran and the United States for a broader deal? Is that just dream land? I I, I do. Um, and, and in fact, I think dream land's too strong. Look, anything's possible. And, and this may turn out well. I mean, you can't rule that out. But the first That's negotiation... True. The first negotiation is not with the Iranians. The first negotiation is between us and our European friends. And, and I think that's the first fault line that we're now going to have to bridge. And if I'm advising the Iranians, and I'm not, um, I would suggest to them, sit tight. Continue to observe the external protocols of the deal. Let the transatlantic fight play out and see what you can pick up after that battle as you police that battlefield for your for your own interest. So I think it's going to be a while before we start having an American-Iranian, certainly a Western-Iranian dialogue underway. Michael, there were some confusing elements to the, uh, the president's statement yesterday. Um, linking Iran to Hezbollah quite clearly is something we all think about, but linking Iran to right. Al-Qaeda was something new to me. Um, was that new to you? And just how can we link Shia <clears throat> Iran to sunny Al-Qaeda? Yeah, so we, we, we've had this argument uh, back in the, in, the, in the Bush administration, and, and there have been, there's no question, there have been some accommodations uh, between Iran and Sunni terrorism, all right, in terms of uh, safe haven, loose house arrest for al-Qaeda folks uh, inside Iran. But if that is nothing compared to what you suggest, which is the sustained, significant Iranian support for, for Hezbollah. Uh, a must-read for the intelligence community and international relations, The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. This is a terse book by Michael Hayden. Of course, you know General Hayden as a former director of National Security Agency, uh, working uh, with the uh, National Intelligence as well, and, of course, with our Central Intelligence Agency. General Hayden, page 94 of your book, you give a raise to Ms. Haspel. She will go up in front of a brutal testimony on the Hill in the coming hours and days. There's been so much written about Gina Haspel in your CIA. I want you to explain to our national and our global audience now what the critics get wrong about what seems to be some form of paths of torture right. in the past. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for bringing that up. And in, in, in a very real way, what I'm going to say about Gina is tied back to what I just said about the Iranian deal. I, I just pointed out that the intel guys had a certain view, but it seems as if the decision the president made was detached, not connected to what the intelligence guys were telling him. Now, fast forward to Gina. 
we have a president who makes decisions instinctively, some would say emotionally, some would even say he does it just so he can appear to be not Barack Obama. And, and so you really want some people in the room who want to bound the president's decision-making, create left and right-hand boundaries by an objective view of reality. Someone who's going to stand up to the president when everyone else in the room is going to go into what I call north-south autobob after the president has said something and say, boy, you got that right, boss. Right. The one woman I am confident will do that will be Gina Haspel. I know Gina. She is the truth teller. She is tough. She will speak up. And I think we've never needed more a CIA well, director to speak up in the Oval. Now, a lot of people want to look to her past. People want to look to what happened 17, 18 years ago and relitigate again what it was my old agency did. And, and frankly, I think we're a bit tired relitigating, but if people want to relitigate it, right. talk to the directors, talk to the presidents, talk to the attorney generals, talk to the members of Congress who actually thought this was a good idea at the time. Talk to the people who created the policy if you want to relitigate okay. the direction America took. General Hayden, if we take the realist international relations school of Henry Kissinger and maybe Robert Kaplan with his wonderful new book, The Return yes. of Marco Polo's Road, and we compare it with those concerned on human rights, how does a grizzled veteran like you balance that in a debate over uh, this candidate to run the CIA? How do you balance realism with an American tenor of human rights? I, I, I get it. And, 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 and oh, by the way, uh, American values create American power in, in, in the world. All right. So I, I, I thoroughly understand this. So let me take let me take one more run at why even on this issue, you want Gina Haspel to be the direct, directed, was the agency did. And, and the guarantee I'm giving you, giving you is not because Gina or the, or the C repudiate the CIA did in the past. The CIA, let me, be, let me be candid with you and your listeners. Please. The CIA did this, 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 did this. They believed that it was effective, lawful, and appropriate. We're going to argue about that later. That's fine. But they also thought that the people who told them to go do it, the broad American political establishment, had their back. And as it turns out, they didn't have their back. Gina Haspel, as the director of the agency, who loves the agency, who loves the agency's officers, will, because of that, never put them into jeopardy again. If you want a director who will stand up to even a Donald Trump, who might be directing enhanced interrogation and simply say, boss, we're just not going to do that. That director is Gina Haspel. I have to leave it there. Michael Hayden, thank you so much. General Hayden with the assault on intelligence, American national security in an age of lies. Agree or disagree? It is a primer that will advance your understanding of where we are in our recent intelligence uh, wars as well. And again, the testimony, Ms. Haspel, uh, before the Senate, I believe that is, the, is it Colin, this afternoon? The Senate this afternoon. Great to catch uh, up with the general. Well. Yeah, extremely timely. We really thank our team for putting this together, this conversation uh, with the general uh, as well.
What's the future of Deutsche Bank? We've been considering that for years now. Well, Deutsche Bank is said to be mulling U.S. cuts, hitting 20% of staff. The author of that story this morning, Shanali Basak, Bloomberg News reporter. Great to have you with us on the program, Shanali. Walk me through what you've learned in the last 24 hours. Sure. So the biggest thing here is that they're considering cutting 20% of their staff, which is quite a lot steeper than the 10% we initially reported. We know more or less where they're making the cuts, though we're waiting for more to become clear. We know they're making the cuts in cash equities, in repo, um, in prime brokerage, so you know, mostly on their markets desk, and a little bit on the rest of their investment bank, which includes M&A staff. Uh, let's be clear, 20% is more than 2,000 um, here in the United States. This is a decent number yes. of jobs that could be gone. And a lot of them also at the high levels, right? So some of these teams have two or three people leading them. We can imagine those teams will be led by one person, for example. What does this mean for the ambition of this bank and the international ambitions of this bank that were so great a number of years ago? Where are they now? The interesting thing is 20%. It's significant, but it also shows that they want to keep some sort of presence here. So it's going to be a weird balancing act, right? It's going to be a difficult one because we haven't seen any cuts to any other fixed income desks yet, for example. And if they want to keep clients in fixed income or clients that want to have a European presence, they're going to have to make those businesses attractive enough to keep them. So the way you do it is to be sure you can shop at Whole Foods at Columbus Circle? Yes. So they're losing one out of five bodies <laughs> And they're moving from downtown mm. up to Whole Foods Time Warner Center so people can go gluten-free in aisle seven? It's really interesting. I, I don't know if you guys saw the picture, for example, of the trading floor. You can oversee Central Park. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's it's something, but it is 30% less of a footprint than it was before. So they're, they're downsizing as they move to... The Time Warner Center. Big time. And as we know, in New York City real estate also, there's so many firms in the next couple of years that are moving to Hudson Yards. So they're moving uptown. Some other firms are moving west. And so there's kind of a dancing. Is this the John here. Cryan strategy or is this the Christian Zaving strategy? Which, which one Good is question. it? It's not the John Cryan strategy. I mean, it, in some ways, and, you know, Marcus Schenk also, the previous head of the investment bank co-head, it was his strategy as well. You know, there is a new leadership in, in play here. In fact, we also broke yesterday that the head of Deutsche Bank Securities is also stepping down, Barry Bassano. So they didn't name a replacement for him either to run the markets division. So, you know, uh, the head of global markets signs the memo. Maybe that's an indication. Okay. But it's For the non-sophisticates mm. like cash equities, I have mm. no idea what that means. But the basic idea is there's markets trading, mm. there's investment banking, mm. And then you said Deutsche Bank Securities. What's that? So the securities division is is pretty much the markets division. It's all the traders. Cash equities and all that repo. And, yes, yes. Yeah. So these are just trading stocks pretty much, right? And so, um, but in that division, you have, you know, rates, right. equities. <clears throat> How will they compare in New York to the platform of BNP Paribas or to Barclays? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure what BNP's footprint really looks like compared, but at least to Barclays and, and UBS even also, you, the other European rivals are trying to grow here, right? So we'll see in the next year or so where they can compete. I mean, there was a time when Deutsche Bank was the t top prime brokerage in the U.S., for yeah. example. And that wasn't too far off. Explain what prime brokerage is. Most of our audience is like, what? <laughs> Prime brokerage. Selling beef? <laughs> right, not Whole Foods. We, prime brokerage is the business that deals with hedge funds. So it's like the the main way that a hedge fund can enter their oper, you know, their their relationship with the bank, and then from there they decide how they're going to trade equities. Are you or hungry this morning? 
Yes, you know, it's, <laughs> we, we got to do remotes from Deutsche Bank when they go work above Whole Foods. Yeah, we're going to go and do the show from Deutsche Bank you above know, Whole Foods. You seem to... The bakery department. Is that Whole what you Foods. like, the bakery department there's at Whole no, Foods? There's nothing gluten-free in it. I mean, everybody's earnest and organic until you get to the bakery department. Guys, there's a Whole Foods around the corner from here. Yeah, there is. There is. <laughs> but it's not like the one. But, but, but he's obsessed Circle. with the Columbus Circle. Whole Foods. Columbus if Circle you ever go round to Tom's and uh-huh. you give him a heads up, you just need a couple of hours. He will run to um to Whole Foods. We play. Yeah, I cook. And then yeah. he, and then he and then he turns up with like a load of baked yeah. goods. Good to know. Are we gonna Are we gonna know Deutsche Bank New York in in twenty four months? Is it gonna be a whole new beast? It's going to be a whole new beast, right? I mean, you said 20% yesterday, but, you know, it was 10% cuts like a week or two before that. So, and, you know, we have certain areas that are going to cut. Do they lose their best and brightest? I mean, we're running out of time, but... If I'm the best and brightest at Deutsche Bank, my resume is getting brushed off this morning, right? Yes, I mean you're you're definitely wondering you're definitely wondering what the future looks like and if you can compete. The interesting thing is they had a hiring spree for the last couple of years, so you know. Oh, really? So they got, yeah, yeah. Some of the best and brightest yeah. just got there. So. Shanali Basak. I don't know why you put up with this, but thank you for coming back. Um, Bloomberg News' very own on that Deutsche Bank story as Deutsche Bank considers even bigger cuts to the U.S. business, potentially 20% of the staff. Unbelievable. Shanali Basak, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.